This is the diary of Redolf Mudwine. Eighth of Hishon, in the year of enlightenment, 976. 819 AM. If the Taveran calendar is to be honored, today is Yom Shavas, the sixth day, the day of reflection, of rest. The day we consider our findings, gather our thoughts, and prepare them to be shared with the community tomorrow on Yom Shetef, before beginning the process anew next week on Yom Shalot, the day of questions. There is not much Tover and his followers brought to the people that had not been brought before and better, but his rhetoric, laws his rhetoric. The man could spin truth and weave it into wondrous tapestries. His capacity to understand and be understood was simply without equal. It was this skill above all others that he wished to teach to the people. With the posthumous Taveran calendar came the naming of the days of the week, after the steps of the philosophical method. Question, research, hypothesize, experiment, conclude, and the two days of rest, reflecting upon and sharing one's findings. These were marvelous advents. They brought a wisdom to the people that no amount of secular and pragmatic education could have taught. At least not near so effectively. Of course, the days of rest were shunned by the business moguls and decried as tyranny akin to that of the Negifs. But for all their bluster, these exploiters finally quieted when the productivity improved as a consequence of the restful days. It turns out people, when not pushed to their limits, are better laborers. I digress. For all my heresy, I too practice the Taveran days of the week. And today is the day of reflection and peace. Ian is collecting pearl worms in specimen jars to observe the winter life cycle of the vernal glasswing. But this is more rest than study, of course. For in these rolling hills of Cedar Monaster, the air is sweet, the breeze is warm, and the sun graces us with its gentle touch. Perhaps for the last time before the chill of winter tightens her grip. We are a mere week's travel from Jostok. We shall winter there, assuming Ophelia will take me in. With luck, my patient Zero will have had the same idea, and he might be found in the city walls. I only hope he does not infect any others. <clears throat> well, these are thoughts for another day. For now I shall content myself with a brew of tea, thoughts of the city, and the sight of this overgrown child at play. Caught a big one, have you? Well, bring it here. This is the Diary of Red of Buntwine, 13th of Ashan, Yom Lasik, the Day of Conclusions. In the year of Enlightenment, 976, 346 p.m. But something tells me my timepiece needs winding as night has already begun to settle. I sit in the post house outside Jostock, exhausted from a hard day's travel. And what do I find waiting for me? The praise of my peers the loving words of my former apprentices, a care package of dried fruits from the bustling streets of the Mahala Street, in honor of the approaching festival of Sukkot? Ah, oh, bless. No? A sharp criticism of my labors? Ah, just as good, I suppose. Thank you. I shall cherish them always, even as I reuse these spools for greater purposes. Allow me to begin by saying you are never wrong to question my work. 
But before you blunder your way through your stuttered and stunted critiques, remember a few things. First, I did not consent to the founding of an institute in my name, and I would have been content as a begging vagabond. Your offer of funding was accepted only so long as I found your demands acceptable and your expectations reasonably met. Should that change, your institute will find itself without its eponymous subject, and I without a cadre of imps whittering in my ear. Second, the names I choose, the chatter I spew, and the madness of my method are exactly and entirely your job to sort out. I am in awe of and have profound respect for the systems and methodologies that you and my other former apprentices have employed in the pursuit of truth, and I will endeavor to emulate them to the best of my ability. But do not imagine for a moment that I am bound to these guidelines like the patient to the scripture. It is my prerogative as field researcher to classify, notate, and treat as I choose, and your picking and clucking will do little to dissuade me from a course I find effective and convenient. Which brings me to my third and most important point. I remember you, Edom. I remember your quailing voice as I excised a toothed tumescence from a victim of the gnawing flesh. Satan Molodot, Linshogidul, if its designation would better jog your memory. I remember your bleeding knuckles as you washed your hands for the hundredth time after a patient reached out to you for comfort. I remember your wincing face and shaking hands as you brought me the wrong tincture for the fourth time, our tent filled with the screams of that poor boy, as Savel Viride Notefi Grim, the dripping agony, turned his nerves to glass. I remember you, Edom, and I do not imagine that you would fare so well as I under the pressures of field research. So you'll forgive me my eccentricities and clerical errors. Otherwise, you may find yourself in the field once again. That is, assuming you do not already find yourself here night after night after night. Anyway, on to your legitimate concerns. I believe you are correct. I should avoid nomenclature. Future cases will include only folk names and deifics, and the occasional nominal suggestion. I also think you're right about the jaundice in case 001. It makes more sense that it is a potential side effect, occurring some time after the virus enters the bloodstream. As for the anticoagulants, external wounds were already treated with a clotting agent before they were administered. I neglected to mention this. My reports have been lacking in detail, and you have the right of it, by the way. With severely reduced body temperature and liver damage, risk of clotting had increased, and, as I'm sure you know, clotting should be addressed before it becomes an issue. I made a call. If you have the opportunity to suggest an alternative treatment, I'd be happy to hear it. I shall also endeavor to supply fresher samples, and bodies where possible. But alas, I'm half a world away, and while my skills at biotics are second to none, there's only so much that heat-negative bacteria can do. On another note, I read your research and included my reviews. I am pleased to see such good work being done, and I will always be delighted to receive the latest papers and publications. <sighs> when it comes to the facts, the treatment and the philosophy, you are welcome and in fact encouraged to report errors or improvements. But I will not be hounded about grammar inconsistencies, misremembered details, and clerical procedure, so long as I am the only one risking his life in service to the truth. But, 
I will do my best to improve in these areas as well, so long as the strain of it does not compromise my ability to make decisions in the moment. I hope you are well, Edom. Give my best to the Acolytes. They are the future, after all. So I just push this pedal? Exactly. And now the internal mechanism is generating an electromagnetic charge, which is used to write our voices onto this steel wire, I suppose. I wasn't really paying attention when they explained it to me. Aha. And what do these knobs do? I haven't the focused. <laughs> I haven't even bothered to test them. I, I figure I'll receive some passive-aggressive note from Idam at some point. Which one is Idam? Never mind them. I have too many apprentices to count, and each one of them has some complaint about me. They love you, Red. I've seen the way Ian looks at you. Like father and hero. Enough of that. He blushes. You walk past my gallery of flesh without so much as a smirk, but the adoration of your children is too much to bear. Flesh, I understand. I'll say. Don't be crude. Adoration, on the other hand, is... You won't disappoint them, you know. I already have. You should have heard it, Dom. Are you still recording? Case number 003. The Madam of Many Faces. 17th of Ashot. Yom Mekar. In the Year of Enlightenment, 976. 4.23 p.m. Introduction. It is rare indeed that the Nagathim give, and rarer still that they give without taking. The flesh is not easily changed, nor the bone, nor the mind. The Nagathim inflict change without consent. Nagifets of old, tyrants in the name of Byrus, would have us call these changes gifts, as though the agonies of illness were a form of worship that all must prostrate in seeping servitude before an altar of corruption and decay. The Enlightenment brought knowledge and truth through the Church of the Netanim, their god of knowledge and complexity. But so, too, did they bring shame. Treatment freely given did not come without cost, and the weight of impurity was laid heavily on the shoulders of those who were marked by the Nagafim. This dichotomy is false. One can revere the positive changes that the Nagafim hath wrought, and still decry their cruelties. One can be blessed by the touch of the gods, and not felt by them. One need not place their faith in an imagined god to marvel at the existence of complex life, and one not need mule and beg in penitent pestilence for the mercy of the idiot gods of sickness and death. Instead, we must rise above. One such brave soul is Ophelia Bejumania, whose life was irrevocably altered by the touch of the Negifim. This case study will examine not only the effects of the virus that afflicted her parents, but the subsequent effect it had on Ophelia and her unique biology. Abstract. A Lashana virus, known colloquially as bone rend or bending sickness, led to the meeting of two souls. 
Through their coupling, a child was born with a unique presentation of bone rend, resulting in numerous physiological concerns, as well as some unexpected but welcome side effects. Introduction I wish to begin, as many stories do, with the love of two parents and the child that they bore. Lubyanka Drozdova was born to a lower noble house of Zhostok. Her father's mercantile prowess kept the family from the financial cannibalism common to the Zhostovite royalty. But when she became afflicted with bone rend at the age of eleven, a rather rare disease among commoners but endemic to royalty, she was isolated and tended to by the servants of the house. Enter Dmitri Dushevkin, a poor boy and apprentice to his father, personal engineer to the Drozdov family, who offered aid in the care of the young miss. I love the term engineer in Gemevec. It refers to something of a multidisciplinary laborer and home technician. It is among the highest professions a common-born Kemovich can hope to obtain. Even the engineer's family are given special roles and permissions in the household, which made Dmitri's inevitable illness all the more tragic. He simply wanted to help. A child afflicted with bone rend rarely reaches adulthood, and those that do are... Thunder. This early in the season. Strange. A child afflicted with bone rend rarely reaches adulthood, and those that do are typically bedridden. So... In an act of compassion and guilt, Vadim Drozdov, the master of the house, offered to house and care for the boy along with his daughter. Such acts were not uncommon, as most engineers serve a house for generations, and the relationships born of this are often closer to brother than friend. It should not surprise you that the boy and the girl fell in love. It should surprise you less that after many years in close proximity and such Trauma bonding, they became intimate, despite their illness. To their credit, when young Lubyanka became pregnant, the family rejoiced. You see, the Drozdovs were not so high of status that a low-born marriage was out of the question, and with their illness, who could begrudge the girl her true love? She died in labor, of course, as many do. But this was not the end of the tragedy for the families Drozdov and Dishevkin. The child was deformed. Arms and legs at odd angles. A fontanelle too broad to knit together. Mismatched eyes. A nose that seemed split down the center. And malformed male genitals nested within the female vulva. In a fit of grief-induced madness brought on by the apparent monstrosity that took his daughter's life. Master Drozdov strangled the boy to death. When he came for his new grandchild, he discovered that his engineer had taken her and fled the Drozdov house, along with the rest of his family. Knowing that he could not care for a child such as this, but unable to bring himself to end her suffering, the engineer gave her to the Newtonic Church, that they may do right by her. The story of Ophelia Bejmani and what became of the Dishevkins is not mine to tell. Perhaps an addendum is in order. 
if the madam so chooses. I will instead focus on the virus that causes bone rand and the effects it had on Ophelia's development. After infection with Lashna Nagifa, Shaver Malad, there is a 30-day incubation period. Symptoms begin with fatigue and rapid onset of mild full-body tendinitis. It can often be mistaken for overwork in adults and is typically treated with topical ointments, steroids and analgesics for the pain. Not long after the initial symptoms, there is an abatement, sometimes lasting a few days, sometimes weeks. But soon the patient will experience a sensation not dissimilar from shin splits or growing pains. This radiates throughout their entire body, despite the care most patients exhibited during their initial symptoms. It is only at this point that a physician is likely to suspect bone rend. The disease then progresses in a rather unexpected fashion. Straight hairline fractures begin to manifest throughout the skeleton. Over time, these widen, resulting in bone segmentation, making movement nearly impossible. This leads to depressed breathing due to the collapse of the ribcage. Subdural bleeds, deep vein thrombosis due to inactivity, as well as nerve damage caused by kinks and obstructions of the vascular system. It is a cruel disease which leaves its few surviving victims crippled, making Ophelia's case all the more interesting. Case history. I must begin this section by stating that my opinion is not relevant here, and I will attempt to share my impartial analysis of the facts. But your opinion does matter, and while each life is sacred and incomparable, those without wealth are often put into situations in which incomparables must, by necessity, and curse of fate, be compared. The Natonic Church, for all of their compassion, has a strict policy when it comes to orphans and abandoned children. If an infant plague mutant is not claimed within 30 days of receipt, the modern Taverin Church, in direct conflict with its late founder's teachings, will euthanize the child. Know this. Most children so affected will live agonized lives, helpless and alone. Many will not see maturity, and fewer will be capable of caring for themselves. Those lucky few who manage to carve out some form of normalcy will still be branded as monsters by civilized society. However... Many also find themselves worshipped as blessings by Nagific cultists, which is why so many turn to the Nagafim in search of home. It is for these reasons, among others, that the Natonic Church, specifically the modern Taverin sect, would sooner see them laid to rest rather than in the hands of the enemy. Fortunately for young Ophelia, the Jostov royal family are traditionalists whose faith values all human life above all, without exception. Even when such a child cannot adequately be cared for, even when this reverence results in suffering and devastation. As a brief aside to you, dear stranger, the Red Oath Burntwine Institute accepts all orphaned and abandoned children. They will be fed, clothed, educated, and raised in the natural philosophies they will be cared for and loved as siblings among peers who will intimately understand any affliction from which they suffer. 
it is not a comfortable life. There is little wealth and less indulgence. But it is an honest life, full of compassion and companionship. If you would bear a child whose life will be one of suffering and stigma, it is in your power to end that life. But if you would see them flourish and be nurtured until the end of their days, bring them to the Institute. Look for the symbol Ayin carved in the outside walls of any physician. They can point you in the right direction. <clears throat> Apologies for the diversion. With Ophelia under their care, the church began documenting her symptoms. She was isolated and only handled during the administration of treatments. I am a philosopher more of the body than the mind. The viruses of sugar, of madness, are my weakest subject. But I do know that deprivation of touch in infancy has been seen time and time again to be harmful in development, and may well have contributed to Ophelia's difficulties adjusting to society's expectations of her. The poor girl needed to be loved. Sometimes I fear that I myself am losing touch with the human element that separates treatment from care. These deacons did an admirable job of treating a child whose affliction they did not fully understand. It is clear she was more oddity and obligation than child, as can be seen in their journals. It was several weeks of careful feeding and treatment before Ophelia began to show signs of improvement. But the presentation of that improvement proved to be rather unsettling to her surrogate parents. One day, according to their journals, one deacon heard a wet cracking coming from Ophelia's cot. When he investigated, he found that the odd angles of her limbs, caused by the segmentation of her bones, were righting themselves, as a joint snapping back into place. He notes that his first impression was that the child was suffering from the final stages of whatever God had claimed her. But soon the cracks and convulsions subsided, and what remained? was a relatively normal child, though the physicians noted her eyes had changed shape, and to a lesser extent, colour in the process. Examination of her bone structure showed that cartilage, tendons, and muscles had formed around her bone segments, creating new joints. The changes in her eyes seemed to be the result of an unusual formation of multiple pupillary sphincters, allowing her to contract the melanin layer of the iris. Not long after, her skull segments developed the same cartilaginous braces. This, unfortunately, meant that her skull would never offer adequate protection from blunt trauma. Her risk of concussion and brain damage is significantly higher than that of a normative child. It must be understood that the additional joints she bears are not the byproduct of evolution, but an accident of divine intervention. As such, they are under constant strain as she attempts to remain stable. She suffers constantly, from micro-tears, inflammation, sprains, and stiffness. But these miseries and dangers were not without their benefits. When one observes an infant, it is clear the precious little thing is trying to understand how its own body works. The kicks and grips and twists and turns are vital to learning. Now imagine a child with twice to four times the number of joints and what can only be described as bone extensors and flexors. And these foolish clerics watched in bafflement 
as the child changed size, shape, and appearance in the most strange and awkward ways. Winophilia was well enough for proper examination. It was determined that her sex was also not entirely clear. She maintains functional male and female sexual organs and is capable of retracting her penis. She lacks ovaries and instead has undescended testes, which are of course presumed to be sterile. A fertility test has not been performed, but given her choice of career, if she were capable of impregnating someone, it likely would have happened by now. Ophelia missed most of her developmental benchmarks, by a wide margin. She was not able to stand, let alone walk, until the age of three. When she spoke, if she spoke at all, it was muddled and without any clarity or diction until she was six. She was also unable to focus her vision without the aid of corrective lenses until she was ten. A regimen of massage, physical therapy, and anti-inflammatories provided some respite from the constant pain she suffered. But these were designed for children with normative bodies and did little to develop her unique traits. She was a bright child, and very well read, due to the libraries of Jostock and the direct tutelage of the clerics. However, when she eventually left the care of the church, she was in no way prepared for the world at large. And while the church claims to value life, little aid is provided once the arbitrary line of adulthood is crossed. She found most tasks that required motor coordination to be unbearably painful, extremely difficult, or out-and-out impossible. And for all of her intelligence, her status as an orphan and mutant prevented her entirely from finding employment among higher society. She eventually resulted in using her talents in ways that she is not proud of. Theft, forgery, and impersonation, which eventually earned her a brutal assault at the hands of one of her victims. That is when I found her. She was wearing a men's cassock and had been operating under the guise of a clergy member, subject matter with which she was intimately familiar. She was moaning in an alleyway, bleeding profusely from a knife wound in her side. Her mid-tibial joint had been badly torn from repeated kicks which affect the height of her transformations to this day, requiring elevated shoes, lest the limp of her uneven legs give her away. In addition to the knife wound to her liver, she suffered a ruptured kidney, countless contusions and lacerations on her face and body, a broken tooth, several broken ribs, and a broken arm. I tended to her over the course of several weeks, while I examined her condition. It was some time before she trusted me with the depth of it. Together we created a more comprehensive physical therapy and calisthenics program that was tailored to her needs. I prescribed a course of steroids to be taken at intervals every few months until the chronic inflammation in her joints had subsided, and then only as needed for particularly bad flare-ups. Finally, I advised her to change her career. She did not seem to be cut out for criminal life. Since that day, I have made an effort to visit her at least once every few years. Each time, she was more wealthy and better established in the community. Today, she owns six brothels, one in Ibrahim, and the rest here in Jostock, as well as controlling interest in a dozen other businesses. She has also earned herself the title of Grafinha, which is equivalent to a countess in other peerages. A beacon of what can be accomplished if we simply care for, instead of exploit or marginalize, those who have suffered at the touch of the Nagafim. Patient Description While her appearance can and does frequently change, 
there are many clear marks that help identify Ophelia among her many personas. The first is her voice. While she has an incredible talent for impersonation, the natural length of her vocal cords makes voices in the higher registers somewhat challenging. And so she often has a depth in vocal fry that does not always match what one would expect from her appearance. She also has no control over her skin. The rich olive complexion common to the southern Kemovich cannot be altered, and even with her notable pallor, she stands out in a northern crowd. Her eyes are naturally hazel and can become more green or brown, depending on the effort which she wishes to exert. Her hair is also not something that she can control. It is a thick chocolate brown, with considerable curl and volume. Of course, she goes to great lengths to hide this, including chemical treatments. After all, the standard of beauty in Kemovac has always been blonde and pale. Fortunately for her, the zygomatic, maxilla, and mandibles each have three segmentations, allowing for tremendous facial control. She can also broaden and extend her nasal and palatine bones to change the nose shape to a degree. Her musculature can contract, reducing her height by around 10 centimeters. She can then extend it with extreme physical exertion to gain about 8 centimeters. Every part of her wingspan can be extended and contracted as well. She can widen and narrow her hips, though the size of her torso largely depends on subcutaneous and visceral fat. She is also naturally small of breast, enabling her to hide her mammary tissue as needed by broadening her chest. Her transformations to the masculine are a sight to behold. Of particular note, however, is her relaxed state. When at rest, a condition she finds rarely. She appears to be largely androgynous, trending toward the feminine. She stands at around 165 centimeters. Her skin is healthy, blemished only by scars. Badges of honor in the fight for her life. And her lips are full and prone to smiles, despite a lifetime of frowns. She is beautiful. And despite being over 40 years old by my count, she still looks exactly like that twenty-year-old girl I pulled bleeding from the alley. Perhaps something in her condition produces collagen and elastin. Hmm. Anyway. Physical examination results. Upon my arrival, Ophelia complained of aches in her lower abdomen, a lack of appetite, and sudden weight loss. After a brief rest and shower, I performed a physical examination. I expected to find nothing more than bowel impaction or appendicitis, but with no fever and no blood in her stool or urine, I hoped instead to find a food intolerance or irritable bowel. But during her pelvic exam, I discovered what seemed to be a large growth in the area of her right testy. It will be impossible to know for certain without exploratory surgery something I am loath to perform without proper facilities and equipment. But if it is a tumour, there is a possibility that both testes are affected. And even if the other is not, it may simply be a matter of time before it too must be removed. I defer to her decision, of course. It is difficult to tell what effect this might have. If this were simply a congenital androgen insensitivity, the undescended testes would be largely vestigial, and removal would have been recommended as a matter of course. But the removal of both gonads may impact the function of her penis. Whatever she chooses, I... I fear for my friend. 
she is a light in her community and my life. The world would be so much darker without her. Treatment plan. After surgery, I will prescribe hormone and steroid therapy and advise her to limit her contact with others to avoid infection in her immunocompromised state. I will, of course, remain with her during her recovery. The winter is long, and there are far worse places to endure it than Jostock. Conclusion. Bending sickness is a horrible and cruel disease, and yet, whatever changes it made to the bodies of Ophelia's parents, led her to inheriting a truly remarkable ability. I think back to the Vradov boy in Nistrad. Heredity seems to play a greater role than I anticipated in the effects of the Nagafim on our bodies. It is perhaps too soon to know, but I do so wonder what other changes might come from pairing of the infected. I wonder how the Nagafim change us. And in moments such as these, I dare to wonder why. Next Steps I shall make myself available to the local physicians. I will, of course, use a pseudonym, for even though the Jostovs are devout Netanists, I suspect their orthodox churches would not take kindly to a heretic, regardless of which church he offended. Thank you for listening to The Heresies of Redolf Burntwine. Today's episode featured the voice of Dana Ebert, as Lady Ophelia Bejumani. If you have the opportunity, please share this show with your friends and give it a five-star review on whatever service you use. You can find additional content on my Patreon at thorb.info. I've been somewhat remiss in releasing Patreon bonus content as I focus as much as I can on releasing content for this primary RSS feed. If there's any particular content that you would like to see on the Patreon, please reach out to me at admin at Thank you so much for listening, dear stranger.